Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is noon on March the 10th. It's uh, noon at least on the West Coast in Berkeley, California. It's mid-afternoon on the East Coast and evening in Europe. March 10th, though, everywhere. And once again, the news is completely dominated in one way or the other, by healthcare. Uh, the big story, of course, of today is that Joe Biden is about to announce, or perhaps he's already announced it by now, that he's got another 100 million doses of J&J's vaccine for COVID. But our concern and interest and importance of healthcare spreads very widely. Uh, more and more pieces, this is from today's New York Times about black and Hispanic communities, grappling with vaccine misinformation uh, in the wake of the Markle, the controversy over the, the Meghan Markle interview, who's certainly anything but a, a minimum wage worker. There's an opinion piece in the New York Times today about connecting the, the minimum wage with preventing suicide. So economics and health, according to at least uh, this op-ed writer, is intimately bound up with one another. Um, more and more stories about the profound um, inadequacy of the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, story in today's Times: uh, an almost twenty-three thousand dollar bill for somebody just to deal with their COVID. And of course, most of us are still waiting in line for the vaccine. I am. Many of you are. We're still not entirely clear where not only where we stand in line, but where we are supposed to stand. So healthcare and capitalism and uh, the, and democracy are bound up with one another. And my guest today on the show is a guy who has spent his life thinking about the relationship between healthcare and democracy and capitalism. Uh, uh, Nicholas Freudenberg is a distinguished academic and is the author of a, a really interesting new book from Oxford University Press called At What Cost? Modern Capitalism and the Future of Health. Nick, is healthcare the, to borrow an Aristotelian term, the first mover in everything we talk about in today's early 21st century news? Is it the thing connecting the dots between economics, personal health, per personal happiness, and politics? Well, health is right at the center of so much of what is going on in our society. In, uh, I, I talk more about health and public health. Healthcare is one piece of that, but the whole of it is bigger, has to do with the environment has to do with people's working conditions. And what has struck me, particularly about the last year, 2020, but also the last decade, is the cascade of public health crises 
that we have encountered, the COVID pandemic, of course, but also deaths of despair, uh, the climate emergency, the uh, increasing trouble that low wage workers have in supporting themselves and their family and staying healthy. And in this book, I'm investigating how modern capitalism, the capitalism that has evolved over the last few decades has contributed to these uh, public health crises. And the case I make in the book is that uh, the changes in, in capitalism have in fact made it more toxic, have made it uh, really a threat to human and planetary health. And I want to understand how that happened. And I'm also hoping that we can figure out what to do about that. Nick, you quote Alice Walker in the book, um, not really an authority on economics, but certainly a very distinguished writer on the changing face of US and global capitalism. Uh, Walker writes, well, capitalism is a big problem because with capitalism, you're just going to keep buying and selling things until there's nothing else to buy and sell, which means gobbling up the planet. Now, a skeptic might say, well, that's a rather childish thing to say. Um, there's always been critics of capitalism for the last 300 years, and it's never quite gobbled up the planet. Is there something profoundly immoral about capitalism? Is it simply something that doesn't work in your view? Well, I think capitalism is in one thing. It changes. And so I'm focused uh, in my thinking and in this book on what I call 21st century capitalism, the capitalism that has evolved over the last uh, couple decades, particularly in response to the uh, financial crisis of 2008 and the recent uh, COVID uh, economic crisis. And I think it has become, because of some of the internal dynamics of capitalism, of the growing role of the financial sector, because of the increasing globalization of supply chains, it's become more damaging to health. And that is what concerns me. And that's what I try and talk about in the book. I'm also particularly interested in how those changes affect our day-to-day -day lives. And the book is uh, organized around what I call the six pillars of health, food, healthcare, education, transportation, work, and social connections. And in each of those cases, the changes in capitalism have made it harder for people to get what we need to stay healthy, to survive and thrive. Uh, and that I think we're on a collision course with being able to leave a survivable world for our children and grandchildren if we leave things as they are today. And the climate emergency uh, is just perhaps a, a very stark illustration. Uh, and I think highlights Alice Walker's quote that, uh, it's not just consumption, but it's a pattern of consumption that uh, focuses on increasing corporate profits, no matter what the cost to human well-being. That's what we need to worry about. And it's the fossil fuel industry. It's the food industry. It's the tobacco it's all industries, according to you. In 2020, you suggest this crisis reached its apotheosis. You write, 2020 was a banner year for the followers of the apocalypse. Massive fires, a record-breaking 30 tropical storms or hurricanes. Uh, and of course, there was the COVID-19 pandemic. 
estimated by the end of the year to have infected at least 60 million people. We're no longer in 2020, Nicholas. Um, is the apocalypse over? Have we turned a corner in 2021? Not at all. Uh, there are some, of course, promising signs. I think the, uh, the development and deployment of a vaccine that you talked about earlier is a, a wonderful step forward. I think the uh, defeat of Donald Trump uh, removes a huge obstacle to uh, the health of the world. But the climate emergency, the deaths of despair, the patterns of consumption that are not sustainable. Well, you mentioned deaths of despair, Nick. Uh, that was Angus Deaton's book with his wife, Anne Case. Angus was actually on the show. Uh, you also mentioned the defeat of Trump. Most of the people who are suffering this deaths of despair, the white working class or the white underclass, they're voting for Trump. They wouldn't be very sympathetic to a Green New Deal or many of the other things you argue in the book. How, how would you respond to that? Yes, I think... Uh, the one of the characteristics of people in power in this society is that they're able to use uh, divisions around race and uh, gender and class to divide people who in fact have a shared interest. The, uh, the white working class folks, some but not all of whom are Trump supporters, uh, are in fact uh, affected by the uh, changes in our global diet. They're affected by the climate emergency, but they have uh, uh, been influenced by this notion that they uh, are threatened by people who uh, are even lower in the current stratification system, who have less. That's the. Uh, I know you're you're a big fan of Heather McGee's new book. She was just on the show. That, of course, is. Uh, Heather's argument in the sum of us, her wonderful new book. Yes, a really important new book. And she, I think she really shows how racism hurts all of us, almost uh, all uh, white folks. Uh, sexism hurts men as well as women. And we, you know, both people in progressive movements and people in public health have to uh, engage in a, in a conversation that challenges some of those beliefs that uh, we can continue to burn fossil fuel or that uh, making America great again, uh, uh, a nostalgia for a past that never was, are the solutions to our problems rather than together figuring out what a better world that sustains well-being for all of us would look like. Right, so none of the things you've said so far, I don't think are particularly original, but what I was intrigued with in the book is this idea of health and the future of health as the glue tying us together. You note that in every era, people confront serious challenges and strive to better their lives. And then you suggest what distinguishes the current period is the prevalent belief that there are no palatable alternatives to the current economic and political arrangements. Uh, but your book seems to be tiptoeing, at least, towards an original idea of making the future of health, the heart of a, of a new political thinking. Is that fair? Yes, and I, I think I do believe that. And there are a few reasons why I think health is a, a very good glue, as you said, uh, for pulling people together. And we have uh, very uh, robust social movements around 
the environment and climate, uh, now in response to COVID, in response to uh, systemic racism, the Black Lives Matter, the women's movement, the labor movement. But in the US in particular, although elsewhere as well, those movements have also operated on separate tracks. And I think the value of health and well-being at the local level, the community level, and the global level is it can bring those different strands together. It can make uh, out of that patchwork a quilt that um, mm. has a comprehensive view. And I think the task of the next few years is to begin to identify what are some of the cross-cutting policy structural priorities of those many movements now working around health that would allow us to uh, develop the power to challenge uh, the current uh, corporations and wealthy elites who uh, have such a big voice in shaping the rules of our day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, I like the idea, Nick, of a, of a quilt. You're, um, and, and you even have the image later in the book, I don't have it to, to hand, of a, of, a, of a Mexican quilt um, as a sort of manifestation of, of, of social organization. But I think you're right, and you're bringing together a lot of different um, dots from this show. We had a Harriet Wilson, uh, Harriet, sorry, Harriet Washington on the show recently, the author of Medical Apartheid about the discriminatory nature, the racist nature of the American system. We had uh, Richard Grinker on the show about the the, the, the spread of, of uh, mental illness in contemporary world. We had Robert Palberg on the show talking about uh, what, how we should change our habits of eating. Um, everything then needs to change, but we are standing in a sense uh, on, on the precipice. You have this, um, you have this great quote from Eduardo Galliano from 1995 in terms of this transition uh, to a 21st century capitalism. I'm, I'm quoting Galliano. She's on the horizon. I go two steps. She moves two steps back. I walk 10 steps and the horizon runs 10 steps ahead. No matter how much I walk, I'll never reach her. What good is utopia? That's what. It's good for walking. So is the book itself, uh, Nick, in some senses, an attempt towards, if not walking, tiptoeing towards utopia? Yes, well, I would say uh, striding. Uh, striding. And, I think there's another quote that ties in uh, very nicely with Galeano's quote, and that is, we make the road by walking. And I believe that if we look around both our daily lives and the world, everywhere we see people working for change. And what we need to do is piece together those efforts to create a healthier world. In a minute, I wanna talk about one example of some of the work I'm doing with my colleagues in New York City. And I think we learned from the women's movement that when we can connect people's personal lives with the political circumstances, that we then give them the passion and motivation to be working for change over time. Because it's taken uh, the world, these apocalypses that I write about, uh, decades to develop. And it will take some time to, to solve them. And they won't be solved in some ivory tower or some garret uh, on the Lower East Side or in Paris or Berlin 
uh, or Sao Paulo. They will come by people taking action and learning from that action. You know, in, in the medical arena, people talk about the importance of uh, evidence-based uh, practice that comes from scientific experiments. In public health activism, I talk about practice-based evidence, evidence that comes from looking at what people are doing and how it's working. Those lessons come not from the laboratory, but from real life. And that's what we need to be developing. And, and you, bring, uh, you bring, in, in, to, to, to quote you, real life, you are a real life um, uh, advocate for health reform, or you call yourself a public health researcher. You say there are three insights that make you optimistic that we can indeed join the dots and make, make health the new unifying theme in our democracies. Uh, perhaps you might go through these, these three insights that you have acquired over your years as a public health researcher, Nick. Sure, so if we look at the last 200 years, there has been uh, a lot of improvements uh, in public health. And where have those improvements come from? They've come from uh, reformers, from social movements, from uh, public health uh, professionals and advocates joining together and bringing about change. We see the, imp uh, the improved safety of our food and drug uh, systems at the turn of the 19th to 20th century. Uh, Upton Sinclair's book, The, Jing the Jungle, uh, the muckraking journalists, the progressive movement, coming together and changing federal policy, saying the government rather than industry would take a role in ensuring that Americans had safer food and safer drugs. So that makes me optimistic. We've always seen people working for change and I don't see any reason why that should be different. I think uh, a second reason for optimism is we know now so much more than we did 50 years or 100 years ago. Science and technology is a wonderful thing in uh, opening new opportunities, certainly the development of a vaccine for COVID. But what is happening increasingly that is the problem is that that science and technology is controlled by industry, is controlled by corporations. And what do they use it for? For increasing their profits, not for... But, but Nick, we've had a lot of people on the show recently, Rebecca Henderson, for example, from Harvard Business School. Who, who has a new book out, Reimagining Capitalism, suggesting that corporations can be responsible. Are you writing them off entirely? Are they, by definition, corrupt, self-interested, ruining society? I think for the foreseeable future, corporations will have a role in our society. And I think uh, certainly well, I they hope do. That. Well, <laughs> otherwise, who's going to pay us? Certainly they do, uh, uh, you know, as we see in the development of the COVID vaccine. I think the question is, what are going to be the rules about what are public sector, public responsibilities, and what are private responsibilities? And as a public health professional, advocate, and researcher, I think I can change corporations most, not by sitting down with them in the boardroom, but by having people active in the uh, ballot, you know, in voting, in demonstrating, in going to shareholder resolution meetings and putting pressure. And corporations change when they feel pressure, when they feel they have more to lose by not giving in. So I think the strategy for changing corporations is to make 
strong demands that they have a responsibility as anyone in this society does for protecting human health. And when they violate that responsibility, as is so common, you know, the cheap devices that Volkswagen installed, the uh, OxyContin that, uh, that pharma, uh that that they that they promoted that then there have to be sanctions there need to be real sanctions for both the individuals and the organizations. Well, no well i don't think anyone would argue with you on that nick let, let, let's focus on uh let's focus though specifically on on your agenda you say we need to create a cohesive movement i couldn't agree more I, uh, I agreed with everything you wrote in the book but i don't see i still don't see when i look like uh, like Galliano out and trying to imagine uh, the horizon. I still don't see um, the politics of this. Do we need a new political party, a new language, a new agenda, new leaders? It's certainly not going to come through the, the traditional political parties or ideologies, is it? No, but I think perhaps the question you're asking is a question that can only be answered in practice. And so I try to keep us focused on a very practical set of steps. And you call it tiptoeing. I don't see it as that cautiousness, but it's a commitment to working some of these questions out in practice. So what are the shared goals between the labor movement and Black Lives Matter? And there are a lot of them. And how do we uh, bring those folks together to have a shared set of demands? What are the shared interests between uh, the women's movement and the environmental movement. Climate change has a particularly adverse effect on women, and women have been in the front lines of the climate movement. That's the kind of weaving together, uh, quilting together, that I think those of us who are uh, both activists and researchers need to focus on, not having the perfect blueprint before we can do anything. I hope that's uh, Nick, Nick, yeah, one of the, the things you argue uh, in the in the how to fix the world section, the last section of the book is making capitalism the move, the movement's target. I mean, that's all very well. But apart from a few academics like yourself, who are probably tenured and don't have to worry about capitalism um, and a few leftists, uh, Ber Bernie brothers in the Democratic Party, who else is really going to sign on to capitalism as the enemy? Well, I think if you look at the public opinion polls, uh, actually a majority of young people have deep questions about capitalism and its future. And I think the people, uh, the big uh, corporations who control so many of the public discussions in the media, they want us to think that there is no alternative and that there is no opposition to capitalism. Talk to the people who are out of work as a result of COVID. Talk to the people who are not yet making minimum wage. We need to find ways to connect those feelings and those dissatisfactions with capitalism with concrete things they can do next week, next month, next year, in the next five years. I believe that's possible. And I believe there is uh, a majority of Americans who have deep reservations about capitalism as practice now. And we need to have that conversation. Um, hoping my book can contribute to that conversation. But Nick, there are models where capitalism works outside the United States. We had the, uh, the British journalist John Kampfner on the show a couple of weeks ago, why the Germans do it better. The German model works, at least in comparison to the, 
Anglo-American one. Why can't we have a, a, a German or a Scandinavian model, which is pro-capitalist and at the same time has a stronger uh, regulatory structure and more, uh, more, more defenses for people who, for one reason or other, fall out of the system? That's not anti-capitalist. I think there's something we can learn from uh, many societies. And if we look at the world's problems in the capitalist society, there's probably someone uh, doing much better than most others are doing. But what I think even around uh, Germany, uh, it was Volkswagen who cheated on putting their anti-pollution devices and killed uh, tens of thousands of people in Europe by exposing them to particulate pollution. So no country where the bottom line is profit and not human well-being has fully confronted the public health apocalypses that I write about. And to think that we have to be limited to the way that Germany is doing it or Sweden is doing it or the UK is doing it, yes, we can learn from them, but that what humanity is about is striving for something better. And that to be confined to the two options that were available in the 1940s and 50s and early part of the 60s, and to think those are our only choices between capitalism and communism now as it was then, that just doesn't make sense, doesn't show, seem to show a understanding of human history. We have uh, wonderful new potentials and it's up to us to realize those potentials. And the current models don't seem to be working in keeping the majority of the world's population from achieving their full health potential. Yeah, I really like your, your focus on using health and well-being as a unifying theme. And I was also intrigued with your idea of workers' cooperatives. We had the union or the, 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 the veteran union organizer, Sarah Horowitz, on the show recently talking about her new book, Mutualism. How important is working class solidarity in your new world? Very important. And I think the uh, current divides between uh, men and, and women workers and between black, white, Latino, and recent immigrant workers, those are uh, obstacles to achieving this healthier, uh, uh, more sustainable, more just world that many of us are working for. Uh, I think worker cooperatives are, are one really promising model. In the book, I talk some about uh, the home healthcare agency in the Bronx, the largest home care agency in New York that is owned by home care workers. That's a wonderful model, not perfect, because they're in the real world uh, where there are uh, problems around paid sick leave and family leave and minimum wage. But workers' cooperatives both create a way for the workers to have better lives and for highlighting the policy change that, need, that are needed in order to sustain those models and expand them. Nick, one other piece of interesting news today, it doesn't necessarily touch on health, but I think you will argue it does. Lena Khan, apparently, according to the New York Times, is about to be brought onto the FTC. She's been a, an outspoken critic of, uh, of, of, of tech monopolies. And you argue in the book that we need to make science and technology public property. Uh, I know that uh, you have very strong feelings about antitrust, is that another core element in your new world? Absolutely. And uh, a lot of my work is around food. And we see 
the concentration of the global food industry in about a dozen uh, multinational corporations has been associated with now the majority of the calories here in the United States and increasingly around the world coming from industrial ultra processed food that is also the products that uh, contribute to uh, dietary diseases, which are now the leading cause of premature deaths and preventable illnesses, and also put people at higher risk of uh, COVID-19. And I think across industries, we see this concentration of more power to industries and increasing their ability uh, to uh, put their profits ahead of human well-being. And so breaking up trusts is a really positive step. And I think we have the opportunity uh, to make some progress uh, in, in the Biden administration. And just as uh, FDR said, you know, when he met with activists, he said to them, make me do it. And so having uh, good new people uh, in, in some of these positions gives those of us who work in social movements an opportunity to, uh, to make advances in fighting antitrust. Well, there you have it. Uh, earlier this week, we had the, the writer Rosa Brooks on the show, her new book, Tangled Up in Blue. She began with the great quote, or a quote from the great Dylan song. We always did feel the same. We just saw it from a different point of view, tangled up in blue. But there's an alternative soundtrack to this interview. It is, of course, John Lennon's, not that, uh, John Lennon's Imagine. Uh, I don't have a picture of Lennon, but you all know what he looks like. Uh, I think uh, 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 Nicholas Freudenberg is calling on us to imagine, to rethink a world that's clearly out of whack. It's a marvelous read, very provocative. I didn't agree with all of it, but it's very scholarly and well-researched and readable. I want to congratulate you, Nick, on the book. Uh, you are stuck in your uh, uptown apartment in New York City on Manhattan at the moment in these strange times. In addition to your book, what else should people be reading? Well, uh, you mentioned The Some of Us by Heather McGee, I think a really important book for looking at how... Yeah, and Heather's been on the show. Sorry, go on. Yes. Uh, I also uh, am uh, in the middle of reading uh, a book by my colleague, Mark Bittman, who writes about food, a history of food uh, from uh, prehistoric times to the present called Animal Vegetable Junk. Uh, I think that really helps to understand the long history of food being taken away from people's needs. So those are a couple of the things I'm reading right now. Well, uh, I'm going to go off and have my lunch now in California. I'm going to try and eat as healthily as possible. I actually need to get Bittman on the show. I think it's an interesting book with some interesting arguments. Um, Nicholas Freudenberg, At What Cost? Congratulations on the book. Keep well, eat healthily, and continue to dream. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. 
Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at Lit Hub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.